is that if you'd like people to protect their environment, if you'd like them to be, you know, conscientious of making sure that our generation, the next ones, all of us to follow, is that they need to be able to eat in order to be educated, in order to make those types of decisions. So perhaps that's that's the only one that has resonated with me, is that to go through and say, if you'd like to fix these issues, feed the children. Hello and welcome to the Great Climate Debate Podcast. I'm Jeffrey DeSena. This week is an interesting week to say the least. I have had the honor of interviewing two extremely smart gentlemen who have opposing views on the topic of climate change. One is skeptical that we can have any level of certainty about a subject as complex and interdependent as the Earth's climate systems, especially when trying to predict the implications. From his perspective, we just don't have the data to say exactly what is happening with the Earth's climate, much less can we figure out why. So, my first guest in this double feature is also my first guest who does not buy the mainstream narrative around climate change, nor the one that you'd hear from just about any climate scientist. My second guest is one of those climate scientists, and you can hear his explanation in episode 9. In this episode, episode 8, I am speaking with Peter Wells. Peter Wells used to evaluate computer models much like the ones climate scientists use to predict what a two-degree warmer world would look like, and he has seen how unreliable they can be. But his skepticism extends far beyond models, climate scientists, the UN, and the council that awarded Al Gore a Nobel Peace Prize. He may be the most skeptical person I have ever met, and I've known him my entire life. Peter Wells, apart from being my mom's older brother and a reliable source for bad chemistry jokes, was once a program manager at the Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons Production Facility, a quality control scientist, and a Java programmer who served companies in a variety of industries including energy and finance. He received his undergraduate degree in both chemistry and biology, and he received a full-ride scholarship to the University of Denver for graduate studies, where he completed his doctoral research on the interaction of enzymes and DNA. He is now retired, but keeps close tabs on what is happening in and with the world. This interview is being posted concurrently with a conversation with atmospheric scientist Professor Scott Denning of Colorado State University. The irony here is that Uncle Pete once interrogated and deeply vetted Scott Denning just to make sure that he wasn't up to nefarious aims. According to Uncle Pete, Professor Denning checks out and appears to be an honest and well-intentioned academic. We cover the Scott Denning incident, along with a range of other topics, as I try not to get too lost in the climate science. I also try my best to make the next family gathering tolerable. I'll let you decide how well I did. I bring you Peter Wells. Uncle Pete, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're certainly welcome. It's good to be here. Well... People will have a little bit of background on who you are, but I think we'd all appreciate uh, hearing your version of the story and some of the highlights of what got you to where you are today. Yes. Uh, educationally, is actually have a bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry from Marietta College. That was my interdisciplinary major there. And then after graduating from Marietta College, is I went on to the University of Denver I spent about five years there, had a scholarship and a stipend, and finished up a PhD in chemistry. The major work for me at the University of Denver was in biochemistry. However, it is a chemistry department. After leaving the University of Denver, Dr. Mark Fagan and I started a company called American Allied Biochemical. And that company produces 
basically they're reagents for scientists used in doing DNA research. And I was there about three and a half years and sold my interest to Dr. Fagan. And I, I look out there, he's still out there, so the company's still running. I spent time industrial chemist for about the next um, 10 or 11 years in several positions. At a point in time when it was more difficult to find a chemistry position in Denver, as I went back to school, got a master's degree in what's called information systems from the University of Denver. And I spent about the next 16 years doing basically programming and consulting for computers. And then I retired about four years ago. Yeah, I think there are a couple things in there that I'd, I'd like to highlight. The one that I would like to dig into a little bit uh, is your PhD work um, at the University of Denver. Can you describe a little bit about uh, what the research was that you were doing and what the process was like? At the University of Denver is that I worked with a professor by the name of Sheldon York, and he was my mentor and main professor. And we're working on protein-DNA interactions, lactose operator and lactose operon. And the, the general idea was that we had a very small sequence of DNA, and what we do is we'd bind a protein to it. And thought was that when you bind the protein, it can turn that particular gene off and on. And we were looking, you know, really way down in the uh, the binding process of one: how does the protein find the DNA when it gets there to that particular sequence? The protein physically changes and binds to the DNA. And what we were watching was when that protein changes, that we had put a fluorescent marker on it, and that the marker you can see at different frequencies that when it's bound and unbound. And we would take a tube full of DNA and then a tube full of protein that had been marked with a fluorescent dye, and then you very quickly inject them together and say, well, what type of reaction do you see? And it's called stop flow of fluorescence. And the work was uh, interesting. It was add-on from what um, Dr. York had been working on for many years. And in the end, I, I think we added you know a little bit of information to some of the things he had done. Uh, I don't think it added a lot in moving forward to that particular process. And you know it was enough to get a, a dissertation and, and a PhD out of it. But uh, after that, I, I simply moved on and, and became an industrial chemist and and I didn't do any additional work with um, that particular system. And when you did complete your dissertation, uh, did you end up uh, publishing your research at all? No, I, I don't think we ever published it. It said, you know, we didn't submit it for a paper. It, it didn't actually go anywhere. It was much more of confirmation of these things are still working. It looks like if we've changed a few parameters that they're going to continue. I don't think it was new and novel and that it didn't meet the requirements to actually say we're headed in a new direction, we found new things, so we did not publish the research. Did you ever have any thoughts of staying in academia, or were you pretty set on moving out to the private sector after graduation? It was even during you know, the education, as well as after, is that I'd never had any intentions of being a professor and teaching at the university level. It, it just didn't interest me. So I was much more interested in, in being in the workforce, starting a company. While I was a graduate student, you know, one of the... Um, Requirements for us is you know, some of the chemicals were rather expensive, and uh, Dr. York suggested that we go ahead and do isolations on some of the chemicals that we needed for the research. Turns out that they were quite valuable, and that it was kind of the the uh, seminal piece for American Allied Biochemical of making restriction endonucleases, and that interests me far more to have a company make chemicals, 
you know, produce, sell, and, and run a company than be a researcher. Is that that was much more interest for me. But you didn't stay in your own private endeavor for too long. You ended up going to uh, working for the government. One of the interesting points that we talked about uh, when we first discussed this a couple weeks ago was your role uh, at Rocky Flats with the Department of Energy. Can you describe a little bit what you were uh, doing on that project? I can. A, after, after leaving American Isle Biochemical, I, I did have a couple of other positions. And, and the one that was at the longest was on a contract with a company called International Technologies. And they had a laboratory division, and the laboratory division was doing testing for Rocky Flats. And, and Rocky Flats um, was a part of the Department of Energy's and Nuclear Weapons Complex. It's northwest of Denver. You know, what we did for Rocky Flats was, you know, sampling, as we do, uh, do all different types of water, soil, air, and biologicals. If somebody hit a, a deer on the road or a rabbit and collect these particular samples, once the samples were collected, is that they would go to, you know, one of the laboratories that was under contract with us. And said, I think at the time we had about 11 different laboratories. We could test for all different kinds of things. We could test for organics and inorganics, water quality, radionuclides throughout the samples. And then my position was to go through and make sure all the samples got taken, make sure that the samples got to the right laboratory, that they met the requirements of the contract. Also review the laboratories as we routinely went with the client from Rocky Flats out to our laboratories and others to look at our laboratories following the right procedures, are they meeting the requirements for all of the QA samples and uh, review of documentation? Laboratories were all secure. Is an interesting process for that. Is that they all had a chain of custody. So the when you start a sample, is that you're on site. You need security clearance to be on site. You pull a water sample from a well. Starts the chain of custody. It gets transferred to the laboratory. In transit, it is is signed off on. When it gets to the laboratory, it's signed on again. It's held in a secure facility until it's actually tested, and then it's also signed off on what it is disposed of. So there's you know, a lengthy process to make sure we're looking at the right samples, and that leads to believing that the samples that you have are unadulterated and actually came from that particular facility. So that was the job. I did that for International Technologies in a laboratory. was later sold off in Cold Quantera. I did that for about seven years. So we spent a lot of time with radioactive samples and other. So how was it working with the Department of Energy? or Did that help you form any uh, opinions of the federal bureaucracy while you were there? <laughs> it, it sure did. It's certainly eye-opening to watch. Is on plan site, they have you know full laboratory capabilities there, and they have a lot of requirements to make sure that they're contracting and spending your money in a reasonable fashion. And it also means that occasionally the, the, some of the requirements meant that the money was spent rather foolishly, is that we got to see lots of those pieces, that they had unionized um, workers there. We also had you know, requirements that we had to go out and subcontract with other people, and that whether or not they were capable of handling the samples is that you know, our contracts required us to, you know, slice off a piece and send it to them. And that, it, you know, watching the whole interchange between 
you know, the prime contractors, the subcontractors, the unions, and your tax dollars is it a private laboratory that cost $40 million to on plant site might be a billion dollars. Is that there the additional overhead of being secure and all the other requirements for the government were at times very expensive and overwhelming. Dealing with the unions is that if you were working on something that's part of, of their contracted duties, is it can be a, a huge problem. As a, something as simple as moving your desk within a building, if that's a union required job, is it that they can go through and say you violated their contract and they can come through and shut down part of your building to get things straightened down. Um, and and it, it percolated all the way to the top is that contract negotiations, understanding where there are savings, uh, it, it went all the way through to um, Hazel O'Leary was the secretary of the Department of Energy while we were there and Bill Clinton was president and watching the interchange between the site at Rocky Flats in the negotiations and what happens to dollars and votes and it made no sense from a, a management dollar policy scientific direction, but it made a lot of sense politically is that how they wanted to handle it and what would garner the most votes for the incumbent president. So it was eye-opening to see broad spectrum management, safety, sampling, testing, you know, interesting that they sent so many samples off-site to us because they were unable to get them done on-site and that there was a, a constant conflict between is it more or less expensive, you know, who's got the, the right manpower and are you still able to meet the requirements and security? Is it interesting pieces to see. Wow. Uh, while we're kind of talking about government issues, have you ever been active in politics? No, I, I, I haven't. I'm not a, a registered Republican or Democrat, as I'm, I never have been. I, I do vote regularly, but as far as running for a position as a, a student on campus or afterwards and in, in, in the working force, I, I am not. I'm not very politically active from that viewpoint, but I do, I do vote. But it seems that you're generally well-versed in the political news and what's going on. Have you always tried to pay attention to the happenings in, in the government and, and what's happened in the world? It certainly has grown with when I was much younger as a, an undergraduate graduate student, it was way down on the list. And then as, as I've gotten older and a lot of the, the politics of, of, it had a effect on me as, as I have watched it much more closely and, and, and you have a lot more political viewpoints on, on what's happening in our country and the, and the way different pieces are handled between the, the scientific scientific information and the political information, the, the social media, and how there's an interchange between you know, the science and, and certainly um, you know the subjects you, you know, I've talked about is you know, global warming and climate changes and what is the interaction there. And, and why do people, including myself, you know, why do you believe what you do and what you read and, and what, do, what do you find convincing? And you said that you don't affiliate with either political party, but uh, would you say that you have a, a fairly coherent political view that, that you generally subscribe to and, and try to follow when you're considering voting? I do. For me, I would consider myself financially 
fairly conservative. I'd like to see things run by a budget. I'd like to see things stay within a budget as those things are important to me. But on the other pieces on social issues is I'd say I'm much more liberal. I do like to pick out the one on on abortion is in from my personal viewpoint is that that's a woman's right to choose. And if if she is in that position and would choose an abortion is that certainly is her right. But on the conservative fiscal piece on that, I would prefer not to pay for it. Is that having government facilities that would pay for that is that I would prefer to vote for candidates that would not pay for abortions. Yet there's a piece in me that clearly says if that's the position she's in, that should be her choice. I just don't want to pay for it. And I definitely noticed that uh, the small L classical liberals uh, like yourself and, and uh, many others whom I've spoken to recently have found themselves a bit divided uh, in that the, the left-wing progressives of the Democrats and the, the right-wing conservatives of the Republicans have kind of made a situation in which you were a bit divided between the two. So where do you tend to get your political news or how do you keep up on what's going on uh, considering that there are so many different lenses that you can get such news through? It used to be a lot of the, the local nightly news in the newspaper, but those have, those have faded. And now most of it comes through the internet and, you know, watching um, you know documentaries on Netflix and TV. But most of it's the internet now. Is that it seems to be quicker to read through many of the websites and, and see what the news is saying. And a couple more in the last couple of weeks, but I think I'm up to, I, I, I do routinely read through between about 40 and 45 websites to say, well, what what is the news saying today, and and what's the headline, and then what's the underlying information that they're they're actually have. And I struggle with the the confirmational bias piece of life to say, do we only read articles that confirm what we already believe? So I've I've tried to pick a broad spectrum of different sites to see. So I, I do look at things like the Huffington Post and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And you know things on the other side as well as Breitbart and The Blaze and and in between things you know Yahoo and Google and is yes, to say well what what are they saying the same piece of information that comes through consistently in an article on all those different websites what's the additional information that they're that they're citing and, and making a comment on and it also follows on a lot of the science bases as well as you know whether it's the nature or science or physics news or you know what's up with that is to, to go through and say well how are people viewing it what arguments do they have what are they referencing is it it's it's a lot to go through and say can I read enough pieces in there to say well have I read both sides of a particular whether it's a political argument or a climate change argument is to say well what what are the other people saying and you know, does it doesn't resonate with me. Do you find that um, any sources have been less than honest uh, about just presenting the facts or possibly just outright distorting the facts? You know, I, I have dropped a couple off. I have dropped off uh, Slate and BuzzFeed. Is that I found that uh, some of the, the more left-winging pieces that were clearly unable to to sort out the information from their viewpoints in a, in a, in a very unrealistic fashion. So I've, I've dropped them off, but I still continue to read things. I think the Huffington Post, you know, routinely will pick a, a very left-leaning viewpoint 
regardless of whether there's other information in there that, that might <laughs> represent a different viewpoint. So I keep that one in there. Um, I, I do watch things like Democracy Now! with Amy Goodwin. Is it, It's interesting to see people who are much more liberal on lots of policies than I am say, well, what are their viewpoints? Uh, NPR on the radio, which I listen to you know, constantly, is uh, certainly left-leading, but much closer to the middle of the road, more willing to at least try and have the other side on, on there. Uh, the the right-leaning AM radios between the, the Sean Hannity's and, and the Rush Limbaugh's, uh, I, I have listened to all of them to say, well, how are they viewing and what additional information is there to to garner to say, well, wait a minute, that's only half of the report. Is that there really was other information in there. It, it's been a struggle to say not only read things that kind of match up with my, my current beliefs, would be somebody else's viewpoint to say, does it have some some logic and, and some thought put into it? And now that we've been talking for over 20 minutes and we've skirted around the actual issue that this podcast is all about, I wanted to give people a little bit of background on, on who you are and, and your thought processes, because uh, as uh, they will have known from the intro, that you know, you're the first person I've gotten on the podcast who actually does not subscribe to the mainstream narrative around climate change. Uh, so while we're talking about uh, kinds of political news and such, do you sense a major difference in the way that climate change is discussed in your myriad sources that you've been reading? Um, and, and how has that uh, influenced your view of the issue of climate change? It, clearly, I, I think there's a connection between political beliefs and whether or not you're a supporter of uh, man-made global warming is that the more conservative the sites are, the less likely they are to go through and say, gee, this research, this information is accurate and usable and it's headed the right direction. And the same is true on a lot of the liberal sciences, that if they're a liberal site, willingness to say, carte blanche, all of this information is accurate, all of it points to that there is man-made global warming and it's going to be a catastrophe is that the connection between your political leanings and then your belief or or skepticism about global warming is that the connection there is so strong as to say, well, you know, has it also tainted my viewpoint? I would consider myself certainly on the financial side conservative, and yet on the liberal side on lots of socialists, they say, well, my level of skepticism for lots of the certainly the hyperbolic predictions from many of the the um, well-known people in science is that, see, you know, it, it's just far harder to make those conclusions than the simple graphs that are often represented. to say, well, this one piece clearly shows we are headed that direction. So it, it's a constant battle, and my level of skepticism is, it has remained steady for quite a while now to say, well, you can't just cherry pick any one piece of information and yet, for me overall, then believing that there's going to be a massive change in temperature, yeah, I, I just don't see that. Also, that it will be a catastrophe, that there aren't other ways of, of handling it. And certainly in the scientific piece, the, the math, chemistry, physics, um, atmospheric research, all of these, any of us should be able to look at them and say, the numbers are the same regardless of what your background is. 
Then it comes down to the interpretation, saying, well, now that you have that information, how do you interpret it? And then after you've interpreted it, what are your viewpoints of where those things are headed? And it's that, you know, the first piece, I think, you know, quite often we can get out of the data and say, here's what the data says. The next piece of interpreting it, that the interpretation almost exclusively seems to be connected to whether or not you are conservative or liberal, and certainly the outcome of whether or not you think the outcome is going to be hot or cold or, you know, greater destruction or, you know, almost no impact is also connected. And I, and I, I struggle with that from the viewpoint of saying, well, can I get past those and look at the basis of the information, the data production, and then the interpretations to, well, where do I fall on that spectrum? And, and I struggle with that one all the time. But it still comes back to lots of the pieces that there's a lot of skepticism as to have they drawn the right conclusions. And then from the, the overall of, you know, where we have a goal of climate change is it has nothing to do with, you know, certainly the political piece of, you know, should we do something immediately because the consequence of not doing it is, is those types of arguments don't resonate with me very much, is that they, that I don't find those convincing. And then anytime the government would like a lot of our tax dollars to do something, is that I'm very skeptical that they can handle that well. And then certainly trying to do that on a global basis, is I, I haven't found anything that I've found convincing that you can globally do. Whether or not climate change is one dramatic, secondly, is it cost by man, any of those pieces, I, I don't think they have a handle on how to change that at this point. Do you remember when you first started actually paying attention to the issue? It probably was the, um, you know, the inconvenient truth with Al Gore, the graph of showing, you know, here's the increase of, of CO2 in the atmosphere and here's the warming that it's caused. Is that that's probably the point where we stop saying, really, this, this, is, this is dramatic, it's interesting, and also if this is where we're actually headed in i got to watch this one. This is certainly probably the point if I had to go backwards and say, you know, watching that and listening to that and saying, wow, that's really a, something I hadn't thought of before. And, you know, following that sense, that probably was the seminal point. So it kind of sounded like when you first watched that film, uh, you were kind of buying the arguments that uh, Gore was making at the time. I would, I would say, you know, that first one you go through and say, Absolutely. This this isn't a a complete crackpot conspiracy theory. Is that this is based on science? Needs additional attention. So, what happened in the intervening years? I can't remember. Uh, I guess inconvenient truth was now something like thirteen, fifteen years ago now. But um, what were the kinds of sources that you started reading that um, started shedding a little bit of doubt on the information that was presented in the film? Other people will go through and say, well, this is a trace gas in the atmosphere. Well, the the underlying chemistry of saying that carbon dioxide absorbs in a wavelength that can cause something to warm, absolutely true. Is it overwhelmed by other greenhouse gases? Water, for example, which may be 50 times as prevalent in the same samples, would you even be able to measure the difference? So, well, well, that's an interesting argument. So, well, here's one where you've got CO2 clearly can. I think the chemistry and the science there is, is well documented, but also silk and water. So, well, now how do you put the two together in the real world and then review them? So, well, how about a thermodynamic argument of saying, 
you know, regardless of whether or not you can see it, that your detection level may not be sensitive enough to find the CO2, is that without a doubt, if you have it in your atmosphere, that there's no getting around, that you're going to absorb more if it's there. Okay, it's a good thermodynamic argument. But did it? Are there other thermodynamic arguments that say you did not actually have the opportunity to absorb whatever CO2 would be able to at the surface or higher up in the atmosphere? Now you're getting into more complicated models of saying there are arguments on both sides and say, well, can you then throw it into a computer model and make a prediction from 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now? And occasionally, you know, I have some background in areas of, of, of doing data validation, looking at large data sets that other people have produced. It was a, a computer consultant and worked on modeling and he goes and say, there's these things are very difficult to go through and make those kind of assumptions. And what I find I do, as I think many people is you have a slice that you understand well and have some ability to review and then you get outside of your area of expertise and say, I need to be able to have faith that other people in areas that are are outside of my expertise, they're going to review and do a good job on. And it, it seems to be occasionally they do, and sometimes they don't. You know, that, and that feeds into the more information you have, the more complicated it gets. Is the direction clear that these things all point to the same area? Man-made global warming, we're going to have this. It's caused by, it will, there's enough mitigating information for me to say, I'm skeptical. I find it hard to believe that every time I get a new piece of information, which way does it push the needle? Which which way are we headed? And you know, I, I think you and I recently discussed the the Nature article on was there a lot more heat stored in the ocean? And they said, well, gosh, infer- interesting information, new technique that just came out I don't know, a month or six weeks ago. And within about three weeks, they need to retract part of the article. So was all their data wrong? No. Was part of it wrong? Probably not the exact data. The uh, calculations for their error bars, clearly they missed something. And well, does it still have some validity? You know, does the underlying data, is it the same for everyone? I think so. It's not my area of expertise, but I do find it frustrating that here's a major article, it's picked up by the news, you know, it gains a lot of visibility, and yet there were 10 researchers listed on that paper. Why didn't at least one of them speak up? It went into peer review. I think it got sent to Nature in December of 2017, came out this fall, 10 months later. Who reviewed it? It wasn't until somebody who was out there saying, you know, I'm not part of this group. So clearly, you've missed your statistics on this. You ought to rethink it, and they retract it. It's just one piece to say, I don't know. You know, did they do good research? Have they found something new? The 10 of them on there, you know, do I... Do I have a certain amount of uh, skepticism for them? I do. When you have 10 people on your paper and none of them find it. Science is hard. It's, it's hard to always do it right. They, they got a black eye out of it as well they should. Uh, does it mean all the underlying data is wrong? I don't think so. Uh, another one that, that came up for me this week that I, that I just had to stop and ca- it caused me to pause is in them. I do like Amy Goodwin. She comes on Democracy Now! and, you know, uh, 
occasionally they'll venture into um, global warming. And uh, one of her commentators went through and, and made the statement that global warming is causing the world to shrink. And I had to pause. And I I had to go through and say, now, now she really normally handles political pieces. And the guy that was talking, I had to stop and say, now this is so far removed from my normal viewpoint of the world. What is he talking about? But they moved right on. And you know, for me, it's now become, is the world really a grape that's going to turn into a reason? That I, and I, I'm not exactly sure where he was going with it. That was what was presented, and I said, "Now these aren't scientists, and that they're they're not looking at data. They're making whatever their their viewpoint is, and, and it really was about raging fires." And I, I had to stop too. Uh, there's a certain amount of um, global warming data fatigue that I feel trying to keep up with all different pieces, but occasionally there are certain things that are said on national TV. And I, I just happened to remember it. All I could think of, I had to find an example. Perhaps the world is a grape and we're turning into a race because global warming is causing the earth to shrink. Well, I, I had not heard that one. Um, so maybe I'll have to look into it. I'd be very curious to see what that uh, was based on myself. Uh, but I, I wanted to go back a little bit uh, early in your explanation there. You'd made some word choice that I found very interesting. Uh, you said that these researchers had to have faith in what the other researchers in the scientific community were doing. And I, I thought that was interesting because uh, the idea of faith seems so anathema to many uh, scientific types. Uh, and it if I understand correctly, you are not a faithful person yourself, even though your wife is very devout, um, but you have been skeptical your entire life when it comes to religion, correct? That is true, is that I would consider myself an atheist. I, I don't believe in God, and, and yet I, I am um, very jealous of, of the people who can, and that I, I, I do think that last step of you, of people that live in this world, of you know what they see and what they believe— and what they're absolutely able to show is at some point they have to go through and say, when they do believe in a God, is the last step is to say, I have the faith that there is a God. And But for me, I don't. That, that last step of saying, why are we here? Where did the universe come from? Was there a Big Bang? You know, was that all caused by a deity? You know, I wish I could. I think my life would be easier if I could be faith-based. But I think that also crosses over into, for me, in looking at you know the science and scientific data. Is that at some point you have base data that I think lots of us can agree on, empirical data that's that's there after you've received it, without a certain amount of understanding and training in a field, and you know a, a lot of effort. You get to a certain point; it's outside of what you do know, whether it's the math, the physics, the chemistry, the atmospheric research, that you can't know it all, and it moves quickly enough that you there's a piece of me that says I can't know atmospheric research as well as the people that do it every day and teach it you know as part of their their normal life is I can't and then this piece says I have to have some faith that what they're doing is true and accurate to the best of their knowledge that 
the underlying piece isn't driven by something else. It's driven by science and the willingness to move science forward and have results that are are, are accurate and have the right direction. Even with the faith in science, it doesn't mean you you can't go down a rabbit hole that you don't know where it leads. And there are numerous examples through in the scientific history from plants, Pons and Fleshman to you know, I think the Hubble constant is it where do these things lead? And that the people have faith that everything was going the right direction, but it turned out it actually was inaccurate and wrong. Is it the the piece of saying you can't understand all of it, you've got enough time that does the system, does the scientific method, does the peer review, does being a researcher, which you have a certain amount of freedom, does that allow you to say, I'm going to stay on track, I want people to believe me, and the, I'm going to make the best decisions on these principles, is that there's a piece of of that that you, it does become a faith-based viewpoint for me that, that you have to, at some point, make that decision and say, well, I have faith they have done these things correctly and that this information and these outcomes are accurate. And I have a lot of skepticism in there. Having been through the system in, in much more from a, a commercial viewpoint, that lots of these things are driven by something other than science and that, that even good people can make bad decisions that they don't know about. You say that you know, these are good people, mostly, generally well-intentioned, possibly just you know, self-deluded in their, in their pursuit. But one incident that I, I did want to discuss was that your, your father, my grandfather, went to a talk by Professor Scott Denning at Colorado State, uh, I think that was maybe last year, and after you two had discussed that a little bit, you decided to, to dig in a little bit on Professor Denning's background. Uh, can you describe uh, what happened in that little incident? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I, I enjoy talking about these types of things with, with my dad, and, and occasionally we get to the point is, is that we have a, what I would consider one of those, um, those chemistry or physics or atmospheric um, you know, arguments uh, saying, well, what do you think about this piece of information? And we had one of those conversations, and he said, well, what do you think about CO2 and warming the earth? And we went back and forth and said, well, Dr. Denning said, my father went to a, I thought it was a class, but I think it turns out it was just a presentation. And it was by Scott Denning from Colorado State University. I said, well, how about if I do some research into what you saw in your presentation, and then we can have more of a, of a conversation between my father and myself on what was it, because I, I didn't see the presentation. So it, it started from there. I went through, Colorado State University does a nice job of, you can look up the professors there. He's clearly listed in the atmospheric research department. Looks like he's been there about 20 years. It lists lots of his current publications, which I read through. And it turns well, Dr. Denning is there. Did he get his master's degree there? I think he did. What's his undergraduate degree in? I think actually in geology, I want to say it's from the East Coast, um, I don't know if it's University of Maine or Vermont. So I called the university there and said, well, can you tell me about your department in geology? It turns out they don't have a geology department, but I think students can pick a interdisciplinary degree or a self-directed degree to, to get that. So, well, you know, does his background actually match what his credentials say? I said, well, he's, if he's a geologist, he's not a chemist. And if he's an atmospheric researcher, you may understand some atmospheric research chemistry is that those wouldn't line up. So I 
checked out his background, checked out the amount of time he's been there. Then I went through and read all of his publications to say, well, what has he been working on? When he talks about CO2 models, is he talking about you know large computer models that are being run? And I I don't think so. What I remember was he's talking about models between you know, how to see in carbon interchange between you know, terrestrial and atmospheric. Is I think that was what came through in his articles. Reading through those, they went through and said, "Well, you know, it's time to give him a phone call." I called Doctor Denning on the phone and asked him about lots of these pieces, and you know, I said, "Well." Can you tell me about global warming? Can you tell me about you know, CO2? And you know, it was, uh, what I found was it was a, a very reasonable um, conversation. And also, at, at some point, we did discuss you know, you know some of the other pieces that I had an interest in. I, w- I would like to be able to actually run any of the climate models. Is that a, I'd like to have a user ID impact and figure out which models are, are available and you know, put in the input parameters and then run them and see if I get the same answers they do and then change some parameters and see what I might get. And I, I, I would find that an interesting intellectual and computer challenge. And we kind of got to that point and you said, well, you know, what models you're running? Can I get a user ID and password? And I think a suggestion was read all the other stuff first and and when you're ready, maybe we can come back and work on it. Overall, I, I thought he was a straightforward guy. I, didn't find anything in there that I thought was in any way tainted one direction or the other. I think he's an atmospheric researcher, uh, helps out his students' publications were good. And bottom line was, I thought this was a, a, a decent human being doing the right thing in the scientific community. From there, you know, is there the ability to go back through and maybe have a, you know, a more interesting discussion with my father? As well, here's what I think I read in the from the presentation by Dr. Denning. Dad, what do you think? You know, you know, here, here's where we are with this. So, you know, I, I did spend quite a bit of time with it, and you know, overall, I, that was my impression. That you know, here's somebody who spent their life doing science, geology, atmospheric research, teaching, and gave a presentation to my father, and that I can have a better discussion with him. That's very interesting, and uh, I actually did make contact with Professor Denning recently, and unfortunately he doesn't remember this incident, so I couldn't get his side of the story. I, I'm glad to hear that you know it, it turned out that it seems that he is a you know, well-intentioned, good researcher. Um, I, I think that CSU does a lot of good work, but you know, he very much is outspoken about the role of uh, human emissions on climate change, and it seems that he is you know, within the mainstream, and, and he represents the general view of the scientific community. Where do you think these people are are missing something? And I, I think he hits the nail right on the head with mainstream. When I review that and say, well, you know, certainly on a scientific piece, you know, did I find anything in there that I thought was clearly misstated? No, but I, I think when you go through and say certainly on the campuses in America today, that having a different viewpoint other than global warming is caused by man, I think it's a really difficult task to take on. Is it, you know, if, if you look at even, you know, kind of conservative speakers, if you picked out Dennis Prager or, you know, Sean Hannity, Ann Coulter, you know, even other people left, you're controversial. If you picked out Laura Bush or Condoleezza Rice and said, well, here are what I would consider Republican you know, conservative people, they can't even get on lots of campuses to see. You know, would it be surprising that if you said mainstream science sets? Well, 
you know, that's not convincing in the least. Is it mainstream science may very well mean that if you'd like to have a position on a campus, one, it may be much more difficult to be conservative and it may be impossible to go through and say, well, the research that we'd like to do here is to look at are there other explanations for climate change other than man-made. You may be fighting a battle that is so difficult, clearly in other areas, from my viewpoint, that if you're conservative and that you don't hold those, you are not part of the mainstream. And does it, would that affect your ability to obtain a, a professor's position? Would it also affect your ability to become tenured? Is it the cascade of events, if you're not part of the mainstream, may mean that you may not be able to survive in that environment? That would be part of my interpretation when people say, well, gee, it's the mainstream. I think you and I discussed the 97% plus of people are in consensus. And if you dig into where that number came from, is that, uh, of course, there's another number that really doesn't represent thought of many other scientists. It represents the thought of the 97% that thought that, but it's not necessarily you know, a, a reasonable sampling of all scientists you know, who were interested in even giving you an opinion on it. So. I think what you hit on the head was absolutely on the head there, Jeff, is that if you're in the mainstream, that may be the easiest path to follow. Hmm. Well, it sounded like you were uh, leading into that you think there's not nearly as much a consensus around the uh, the source of, of recent global warming that there there seems to be i know there there was that one paper that purported 97% and that that number has been used over and over but would you say that there's a lesser consensus among the atmospheric sciences climate sciences uh, that that what we're seeing is due to human emissions it, it, certainly the the word consensus I, I think for me is inaccurate and that i i can't find papers and research that goes through and says, we've gone out and asked a broad spectrum of people, what is it they believe in this? Is it, it, I just, I can't find it. Maybe it's there and I just, I haven't seen it. Maybe it's part of my, my bias and my confirmational bias that I, I haven't looked in the right places. But then certainly the, the, the thought that there's consensus, and even if there was, e even if there was, if we take that Godotin experiment and say, Let's go ahead and say 97%. Let's, let's even take that number, which I think is you know, inaccurate. Does that even make it right? Does that make global warming caused by man? Does that make that right? Is it consensus clearly doesn't drive science? Because that's, that's not what science is about. Science is about the data, the empirical data, the reduction, direction it heads on its own, regardless of consensus. I guess I'm seeing a couple points in what you're saying that I'm not sure uh, line up to me uh, is that you, you mentioned that it is about the data. It's about uh, what we're actually seeing in the world. So so it really shouldn't matter if you have a campus full of liberal left-leaning hippies that they're still looking at the same data and, and appear to be coming to the same conclusions. And, and also, if, if there really is less of a consensus than there appears to be, would that not be a better uh, situation in which the science would be self-correcting and, and these issues like the nature article that you brought up are, are really few and far between, but for the most part, uh, the, the scientific 
process is working properly and the scientific method is healthy and self-correcting. Uh, do you not see it that way? I think the scientific method does have those abilities with it. And have we had enough time with this research and certainly where we're headed with uh, people expecting changes from it? I'm not sure we've had enough time for it to write itself, is it? You know, I, I think if you look at other pieces in there, you know, Fleshman and Pons with, you know, cold fusion, is that one got sorted out rather rapidly, is it? That one they went through, published a little early. Are, are you familiar with, with with that one? I'm actually not, no. Uh, Fleshman and Pons came through and said they were able to do what's called cold fusion. They were able to, at room temperature, do fusion. And if true, that had the potential to go through and solve all of our energy problems. And, uh, and, and that particular one, when it came out, I was working at the Laboratory System for Internet Technologies. And part of what they used to look at their data was they were looking at deuterium and tritium, I think, with the two um, radioactive um, isotopes they were looking at. And they were looking at it in their reaction vessel. I was at the laboratory in Hanford, Washington, and we were discussing what they were doing and how they were testing to show these two electrochemists trying to look at radionuclides. And at the laboratory, the head of that division that did tritium testing, and we talked about it, he says, they're wrong. And regardless of what the consensus says, they're wrong, and they will be proven wrong. And as it turns out, it took a while. That one much more quickly than others, but it was it was shown that the way that they were doing their testing and their interpretation of the data was wrong. But, boy, wouldn't it have been wonderful? Shouldn't we have all been on board with that? Is that the science did write itself, is the scientific method did work, and there were people out there that were able to look at the same empirical data, the same test results, and come up with 180 degrees off direction to say, these guys are wrong. And it turns out, the laboratory talking with, this just happened to be his expertise and forte, and he's never going to pipe up and say it. That's not his, he would, he would never go through, it wasn't his personality, nor his job, nor his position, to say, these researchers that have now published this, and in, in the news media's got a hold of it, he would never say a word. It was surprising he'd actually talk to me. But the scientific method worked. And clearly the empirical data and the interpretation and the direction was self-writing. And pole fusion using palladium plates in electrochemistry, while interesting, still hasn't been proved today. So moving back to uh, climate change specifically, it, it seems, in, in my view, uh, maybe I know I'm much younger than you and, and time scales seem a lot different to me, but uh, from what I've seen, it looks like uh, people have been looking into this issue for uh, quite some time now, and, and it seems that the, the scientific process has had a lot of time from my perspective, but uh, from your perspective, you know, how much time would be necessary to, to come to a real conclusion on something like this? It's interesting that you pick kind of a time dependent and that, you know, I would say for me, there, there are other pieces in there that need to be much stronger. Is it, you know, clearly we need to continue to look and see, is there truly global warming going on? You know, how much is there? 
And then he goes, he said, of all the models and all the pieces in there and all the information we have, have we picked the right one? Is it CO2 gets marked on there, but you know, clearly methane and water are, are also you know very potent greenhouse gases. Have we picked them? That time would be one piece. Another one would be greater amounts of data. You know, are we continuing to see global warming? Do we any mechanism to go through and say, well, you know, can we actually remove some of this? Do we have any other modeling? If we take out just this one gas, this one that we picked out, can we make it move in another direction? Is it is there enough compelling arguments to head the other direction on these? Say, you know, every time we take out CO2, temperature comes down. Every time we put it back in, temperature goes back up. Currently in our atmosphere, the length of time the CO2 is going to remain there, that's going to be difficult to do on a global scale. Are there other models that we can clearly do that that would you know, replicate what we're doing? Yeah. And those I would, I would find more compelling and that there has to be more... But every time we come up with one that is you know, one more slice, you know, gee, we have a lot more heat temperature in the ocean. However, our interpretation is wrong. Gee, the, the Earth is now shrinking because of global warming. Is it the, my, my barrier to looking at those pieces until there is more data and then those things continue to, to, to weigh on me, even the ones... If you get the ocean warm enough, will it have enough evaporation that you get way more clouds and that you would stop global warming from that one effect? You know, these kind of things continue for me to be way on my mind and say, have they been thought out? Have they broad-based? And are, are they accurate? Are they being in, incorporated into, you know, everybody's viewpoint? And can we have a discussion with all those pieces as opposed to, now, this this week, I think I saw Jeff Goldblum and Sting and Al Gore and Bill Nye all lining up to say, basically, if you don't believe in global warming, clearly you're a moron. That these things are so self-evident that there is no discussion. Well, there's always discussion. And, you know, I think I quoted for you my, my current saying of if you're 20 years old and you don't believe in man-made global warming, you have no heart. And if you're 40 years old and you don't have some skepticism about man-made global warming, you have no brain. And then when I see these kind of people pop up, you know, Jeff Goldblum, I don't think he's college-educated. Al Gore's degree is in politics. Uh, Sting, I couldn't find that he's been educated by anybody. Yeah, Bill Nye is different. Bill Nye has, I think, a degree in engineering is that he's, he's at least has the opportunity to look at some of the more in-depth information and, and make them his own conclusions on there. But it's, the others is that they are mainstream. They are following the consensus. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting um, that this issue of the, the consensus keeps coming back. And uh, I, from my perspective, it, it seems that um, just the weight of the evidence, I, I mean, I spent a, a fair amount of time a couple months ago reading through the most recent IPCC report, and it seems, you know, they drew on hundreds of studies from, you know, all over the world, and, and it seems like they came to a pretty forceful conclusion. Do you think that was just a product of confirmation bias, or um, I'm not sure, I, I guess, where do you see um, the the position of the IPCC and and how how they've come to the conclusions that they have. Or are you familiar with their reports? I have not actually read any of their reports directly. Is it you know, they get cherry picked and I do read somebody else's review of them. So 
you know, on that one, I think you have me in an area that I just haven't put much effort into it. It sounds like maybe that's one to, to help with my confirmational bias is to see if I can't get through a, a thousand or twelve hundred pages of, of what they're trying to report. We've kind of gone through this a couple of different circles is that, you know, to a certain extent, maybe we can agree to disagree that there are lots of people that are clearly vested in this from their careers and their viewpoints and their specialty to say, without a doubt, they are convinced. And there are people like myself that say, without a doubt, I'm not convinced. You know, then the data, global warming fatigue that I feel, you know, I, I can't know all the pieces. You know, as I have the areas that I have looked at, and then certain things I do not find compelling, consensus is one of them. Will we have an opportunity to revisit these every six months or a year or 10 years and say, well, am I mistaken? It's, it's clearly possible. Is the 97% of the people that argue, are they mistaken? That's also possible. Just to, to play a quick hypothetical, let's just assume that the conclusions of the IPCC are correct and, and they've they've done their their due diligence and the the reality is that man-made CO2 is causing you know unprecedented warming of the climate and we're pretty much in for you know rising seas rising temperatures what do you think should be done about that that that, uh, that thought experiment the Godonkin experiment is saying these are all correct and that what we need to do now is say we're going to heat the earth in then caused by CO2, and the CO2 that's causing it is from fossil fuels, and that we need we need to do something about that. So let's let's take that as the starting point and say those are all correct. Then day is in. Let's move forward. So if we're looking at those and say, well, let, let's try a couple different thoughts and then say, well, okay, if if that's where we're headed, I'd like to know what is the right temperature for the Earth. Is it is our current temperature? Is it two degrees cooler? Is it five degrees warmer? What is the right temperature? And I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, and I haven't actually seen anything that says this is the best temperature. Because I do see that as temperature changes cooler and warmer, that you would have different changes across the Earth of, of where arable land would be, what you could grow, you know, could you actually grow more food on the Earth if we were five degrees warm? Is it, is that a possibility? Should we actually be shooting for something higher? Let's take it from a different viewpoint. If you go through and say, we've gone from burning fossil fuels, and it was at 280 parts per million, we're now a little over 400, 410, 420. And at that point, we've now warmed three, four degrees. If we continue, we might hit you know, 800 parts per million CO2 in 50 years. And say, well, okay, if we look at nothing but CO2, and on the lower level of CO2 within the atmosphere, at what point do we stop having plants be able to grow? If you, which is, we, we have found the perfect method for extracting CO2 from the atmosphere, what level would you like it to be at? Do you want it at 100 parts per million? Do you want it at 800. Clearly, the plants do better, certainly plants we'd like to eat, do better with a little more CO2. If you get below a certain level, well, I think it's down there at about uh, 180, 150 parts per million, lots of the plants that we would use to feed the world would no longer grow. 
And if you're going to err on the side of, wouldn't we like a little buffer if we're going to have a cooling period and have CO2 leave the atmosphere for other self-riding causes, what is the right amount of CO2 for the atmosphere? So we have a couple of pieces in there, certainly, you know, the one, what's the right temperature? What's the right amount of CO2? And then how would you achieve those? Uh, my my experience has been with, you know, certainly regulating these kind of pieces and uh, very difficult to do. You know, certainly in the United States alone, let alone worldwide, that, you know, the environmental towards the saying, gee, the, the Chinese are going to be able to produce coal-fired power plant a day for the next 35 years because they're a growing economy. That's not going to work. We, we don't have a mechanism to make that one work. We're not exactly sure where the target is. Uh, I don't know if it's warmer or colder or right where we are. I don't know exactly where the CO2 should be. And then who's, who's going to make those decisions? You know, are, are, are we going to damage the earth that the CO2 in the air is going to be there long enough? We are not going to be able to recover. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly where to. The, the only, the, the one comment that I've been mean, reading lots of those and say, well, what is the best solution? Is it regulation? Is it carbon credits? Is it you know, banning a fossil fuel? The only one that I saw that I actually thought made sense was feed the children. Is that if you'd like people to protect their environment, if you'd like them to be, you know, conscientious of making sure that our generation, the next ones, all of us to follow, is that they need to be able to eat in order to be educated in order to make those types of decisions. So perhaps that's that's the only one that has resonated with me is, in, is to go through and say, if you'd like to fix these issues, feed the children. Well, that's a, a great humanitarian perspective, and, and I think we can all get on board with that. Uh, I think we'll just uh, be differing on how exactly we accomplish that. Uh, but you know that was a nice little thought experiment. But you know, given the the current reality of, of our state of knowledge, um, you know, in the real world, what what do you think we should do about CO two emissions? Just uh, continue to wait and collect evidence and, and do nothing rash at this point? Would that be um, your perspective, Jeff? I I would say that's exactly my perspective. Is that currently to make decisions to one restrict. Uh, fossil fuels, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how you make that work. Certainly, you might be able to do that here in the United States is that we seem to have a, a more democratic society. I don't think that there'd be any way to cause, even if we went from whatever emissions we have today to zero carbon emissions from the United States, I don't think that it would have any impact on the rest of the world. I don't think that you can get the rest of the world on board. I think the politicking is way too hard, and I think the third world countries aren't, wouldn't participate anyway. So from trying to go through and say, we're going to stop that today. Secondly, what are we going to substitute for? Is it uh, the production of solar panels, wind energy, hydro? The you know, Perhaps the one would be uh, atomic energy. Is it changing the political viewpoint of building nuclear power plants? Is it having been in that industry? That one is very difficult to sell as well. While it may reduce the carbon emissions to zero if you eliminated everything else and give you a 24 by 7 power support source, that's going to be very difficult. Uh, if you'd like to maintain you know, the current life that we have and the conveniences that we have, and so we're going to substitute 
every carbon emission for non-emitting power source. I currently don't know the technologies that can do that. And Jeff, do you know a way of switching even in the near future, you know, two to five years or 10 years? Do you see a mechanism to change from a carbon-based energy system to a non-one in 10 years? Do you know of any technique that would do that? Unfortunately, no. Um, and having worked in the renewable energy industry, uh, I can definitely say that uh, if we wanted to switch over to wind and solar, uh, even you know the most uh, advanced of the, the renewable energy sources, it's uh, it's going to take a lot more than ten years. And and then you know I I would consider myself a capitalist, is to say, are there enough capitalist drivers to to change the direction of the economic models in the world, I think that one has the best opportunity to actually move us in the right direction. Is I find many of the other models I don't think would be as effective. But I'm not sure I'm not sure even if you tried today how you would change our dependence on fossil fuels. Are you familiar with uh, the work of uh, Naomi Oreskes and uh, Eric Conway, uh, their book Merchants of Doubt, which was uh, also made into a documentary? Are you familiar with it? I am not. Their main thesis was basically that there has been a large campaign uh, funded mostly by the fossil fuel industry to uh, sow doubt into this issue and basically put people on uh, the same page that you're on that we just don't have enough information, so we shouldn't do anything about it right now. Uh, and of course, you know, buying a little more time for the, the fossil fuel industries to continue collecting profits. Do you uh, find that a particularly interesting idea? Uh, do you, have you seen anything that, that might point to that being uh, the real case? Yeah, interesting piece in there because yeah, it, it clearly points. You, know, you may be able to go back and look at the uh, the tobacco industry where they clearly went through when were merchants of doubt about whether or not cigarettes cause cancer, saying that the fossil fuel companies, in order to stay in business, is that they're they're going to go through and this is going to be their goal is to say, can we cause all these people or enough of them to say it's okay to run your car on gasoline? Is it? Interesting um, parallel out between those two. And I, I think at some point you would find that that the, uh, the the warming would continue. You know, perhaps a counterbalance to that is that you know, you know I think you and I discussed the Chevron versus um, uh, California lawsuit, and that were, they were basically saying is you know the oil and gas companies and in particular they are one they're causing this, and secondly they need to pay for. It. And there was an opportunity for perhaps we could get that leveling effect of saying, can we get the judiciary system, get a judge to look at all the data from both sides, from people presenting that global warming is caused by fossil fuels man-made and the consequence is here today and it's going to be here in 50 years. I think Oakland was saying they're going to be underwater and that not only are all these things true, and you're going to be the judge in this, you're going to be, I think it was the nice circuit out there in California, we would like the fossil fuel companies to pay us to fix it. Now, is that a leveling factor? Is that what you need to go through is to have a, a as best you can, an impartial intermediary, review all the scientific data, review the consequences, and then make a decision and say, you know, this is how our 
Our system here in America works with the rule of law. It means that if you're a fossil fuel producing company and you are polluting the world and you're causing these consequences, at some point you need to pay for it. And unfortunately, I, I think the outcome of that particular case was when they sued Chevron that they were looking for these are what you did and here's the consequences that are coming. And I, I think the judge's response was he reviewed a good deal of it and then didn't actually rule on what you might like a judge to rule on. Is global warming caused by fossil fuel burning? If so, what are the consequences? And if there are consequences and you've damaged people, how are you going to pay them the reparations that you need to do? I think it got pushed on to say these are not really a legal issue. They really are a legislative issue. And I think he passed it back and said, you're in the wrong place. I don't think he actually ruled on whether or not he thought it was man-made global warming. But I think there's a counterbalance there. If you want to go through and say, clearly, do they have a misinformation campaign? I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, when I read articles that say clearly large companies can't do that, and yet they also use information from, you know, the IPCC and say, well, gee, from your own information, we review this differently. I think that one's a little tougher to push through at this time. Uh, I think there are good parallels to other large corporations behaving badly across the board, whether they're tobacco industry or fossil fuel industries. Kind of on the the subject of influence, um, do you think that uh, funding sources can have an influence on science and research? I I would think so, because clearly throughout my life, uh, the things that funded me were the things that I worked on at, at the jobs, at getting a paycheck, is that where the money come from is that being independently wealthy may allow you to not review where your next paycheck is coming. So that I, I think you'd asked before on certain some of the uh, uh, global climate change um, uh, skeptics that they were funded by oil companies. And that, uh, you know, that's certainly, you, you got to put that in there. I spent some time thinking about that. Wherever your paycheck comes from is that you do need to understand that that may be part of where you'd like to go in your research. Is it? But on the other hand, if you went through and said, well, where are the people at the universities getting their funding? Is Aren't they being haven't they been selected and isn't the paycheck coming from the government? Aren't they also protecting where their income comes from is by saying, gee, it's a lot better to be part of the mainstream consensus here at the university. I'm much more likely to be a tenured professor if this is the direction I'm heading. So if you're trying to go through and say all people's morals and ability to sort out the difference between this is what I really believe, this is how I interpret the data, and it's always based on who pays me. Could you take, for example, Scott Denning, and have him go work for Chevron, and he would change his viewpoint and say, oh, no, global warming doesn't work that way any more than you'd take as Richard Vinson and say he's now working at MIT again, and he's going to change his viewpoint because he's no longer taking any money from a uh, fossil fuel company. It would be an interesting experiment to do if you simply changed where their paychecks were coming if they always changed their viewpoint on the data. And that certainly would be interesting. Um, but uh, I, hopefully, you know, whatever does come out of it is just based on the data itself. 
Um, uh, just one uh, interesting thought as I'm looking over my, my notes here. Um, I want to kind of go back to an interview that I had earlier in this series. Uh, I spoke with um, a former congressman, uh, Bob Inglis from South Carolina, and he uh, is uh, pushing you know, conservative ideas uh, in the climate change action space. And uh, you know, his big argument is that a border-adjusted, revenue-neutral tax on carbon would actually uh, not only grow the economy, but shrink the national government and um, also put pressure on the rest of the world to, to have some kind of action. Uh, if we were able to take some kind of action like this that does follow along with conservative ideals, uh, especially fiscally conservative ideals, um, would that be something that you would be more open to um, when people are talking about action on climate change? And, and do you think that maybe the fact that so few people are talking about such action uh, has put you off a little bit, uh, especially from the, the left side of the political spectrum? Oh, being, being fiscally and monetarily responsible. And if you say, well, gee, we, we can do this for our country across the board on lots of different policies, is those I'm much more interested in. And if it is in the, the sphere of uh, CO2 and carbon, is that, that that's just a, a add a bonus to make other people say, you know, we think we're doing the right things here as well. Is that you know, if the number one basis is, gee, we can have smart policy here that helps reduce, you know, our cost increases our our standard of living, and on top of that, we're not going to add to a problem that lots of people see. Uh, those are those are doable every day of the week. Is uh, I'd like to believe that I can say, yep, uh, I can be in support of that. Is that I, I think the concept there is very good. I'm glad we got to a point of agreement. So I think I'm going to go ahead and call it there since uh, we've been talking for over an hour. It's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, thank you very much for sharing the time that you have and your, your thoughts and your healthy skepticism uh, around just life in general. So thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. And please share with your friends on your social media, or maybe even in a real-life conversation. For more on subjects we discussed, check out the podcast descriptions on YouTube, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And check out Episode 9 with Professor Scott Denning. This has been the Great Climate Debate Podcast. I'm Jeffrey DeSena. Thank you for listening.